The banking business model is broken. The question is, how can we rebuild it? Embedded Finance presents a massive opportunity for banks to play a new role in the financial services ecosystem, offering more revenue streams, lower costs and higher margins. Our new report, Better Banking Business Models, Embedded Finance and the Path to Growth, is a must-read for banks considering the smartest next step. Head to bit.ly forward slash banking as a service to download the report for free. That's bit.ly forward slash banking as a service, all one word, all lowercase. Okay, let's get on with today's show. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Sarah Kachansky. As the severity of COVID-19 was recognized by world leaders, a wide-scale shift to remote working and socially distanced interaction rapidly increased the pressure on cybersecurity teams. That all started around March of this year, and seven months on, we're now in October, which is also Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So with that in mind, in today's show, we're going to be diving into the topic of cybersecurity in the financial services and fintech spaces. Joining me today, I have some fantastic guests, all from different areas of the tech and cybersecurity industry. Uh, So returning to the show, we have Joe Blumendahl, Head of Strategy at MyTech. Welcome back to the show, Joe. Hey, Sarah. Good to be back. Uh, Thanks for having me again and uh, greeting you all from Amsterdam. (laughs) How are you doing? You good? I'm good. Thanks very much. Um, Our country, like yours, I think, has gone into second lockdown, so can't go to the pub, but we'll survive. Oh, we can still go to the pub. It's poor Wales who uh, who have been banned from from socially uh, socialising inside. Um, I feel sorry for them. The Welsh seem to get the brunt of it, but I'm sure it's coming our way soon. I don't think we're doing any better. <laughs> uh, make the most of the pubs whilst we can. Um, making his fintech insider debut, we have Oliver Rooney, who is the CTO at Voxmart. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Oliver. No problem. Thank you very much for, for inviting me on. So, um, as it's your first appearance, could you start by giving us a little bit of an overview of Voxmart? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so, Voxmart is a provider of SaaS and software solutions for mobile surveillance. Uh, we started off doing uh, mobile voice capture, IM capture, so WhatsApp, WeChat, and, and SMS. And, of course, we started recently doing communication surveillance and trade reconstruction, so applying natural language processing, AI, ML stuff, to a sort of multilingual tool for capturing um, and analyzing all kinds of different um, communication channels that a financial institution might have for compliance purposes, for risk reduction purposes, uh, for regulatory sort of trade reconstruction purposes as well. Brilliant. Well, I'm sure you'll have much to share on this topic then. Do my best, certainly. <laughs> and we also have our very own Ewan Silver, who is our CTO here at 11S. How are you today, Ewan? I'm good, thanks, Sarah. How are you? I I am good, apart from a uh, an emergency trip to the dentist this morning. But I shall I shall battle through. Um, uh, the anaesthetic has mostly worn off now, so um, I think I have mostly recovered the power of speech. But let's see how we go. Okay, looking forward to it. <laughs> All right. Well, um, let's start with some definitions just to set the scene. Um, so, what are my guests' definition of cybersecurity? Um, you can all have different ones. That's totally fine. That's kind of the, the fun of these questions. Who wants to go first? Oliver, do you want to go first? Sure, go ahead. I'll go for the really boring textbook kind of definition. Because this is a question that I, I ask everybody when they start at Foxmart. What do you think cybersecurity is? And they all say, oh, something to do with secrecy. I'm like, well, yes, 
confidentiality, of course, but it's also integrity and availability and uh, how that affects all of the different kind of information assets you have, right the way from paper stuff, right the way through to your more exciting digital assets as well. Very, very broad. Um, brilliant. Um, Joe, you, and how about you? Do, you? do you have any sort of different interpretations of cybersecurity? Um, or perhaps you could give us kind of an overview of what, you know, what, what, does, what does cybersecurity prevent? You know, what is a cyber attack, I suppose? I mean, I, I think Oliver hits it pretty much on the head. Um, I, I do think the resilience and the auditability are critical parts of cybersecurity. Um, and also, I think, you know, the, the digital age that we live in, cybersecurity now encompasses pretty much vast swathes of, of normal society. I wonder whether even the name cybersecurity really should be used. Oh, that's interesting. What would you use instead? Security. <laughs> <laughs> no, totally fair. Totally fair. Um, Joe, did you have anything to add? I think I was going to go in the same direction as even security now because everything has become digital, digitized. And, and to Oliver's point, um, if it isn't digital, we're, we're going to have to digitize it, paper forms, old records, accounts, um, all of it potentially under threat by uh, by criminals who will come through a digital front or back door instead of just walking in somewhere. So is there any um, particular new threat um, in financial services? I mean, I guess the biggest threat is what you've just mentioned, both you and you and you've touched on, uh, is that um, people are doing things digitally that they weren't doing digitally before. So a threat becomes the fact that you've actually got people doing different things. And and that, I guess, is, is, you know, it's a different touch point for me, but it's also a different gateway or a different entry point into financial services. And, and therefore, I mean, I know you have to, to do things differently. You have to have different technology, but do you also have to have different processes? Do you have to have a different mindset to cope with the sort of digital onslaught? I, I think the ubiquity of, of uh, digital services, um, you know, mobile phones, all that sort of stuff, the way that people expect to interact with banks and other financial services means that, um, you know, people's devices are a lot more open to being hacked. They will blame the banks for a lot of that. The banks need to accept that actually uh, people want to react, uh, interact with them in different ways. And I just think that ubiquity of digital devices is probably the biggest change we've had over the last five, ten years. Uh, and that has a massive ramification for, for the way that cybersecurity, which I think should be just normal security, has to take place. Does anybody want to build on that? Yeah, I think there's not just as there been this huge increase in attack surface because everything now is digital. Everybody has multiple computers, right? There's this huge exposure there, but... There's a big change in the threat actors who are involved in it. You know, it used to be the case that cybersecurity 20, 30, 40 years ago was just, you know, people doing it for fun, people doing it for intellectual stimulation. Then it became, you know, more and more the province of, of cybercrime, of organized crime and of state actors as well. And I think very worryingly, probably in the last five years, you've seen kind of the overlap of state actors and, and cyber criminal type of activities when you're looking at direct attacks on financial institutions by state-level actors. And if you think of things like the TV saint Monde attack and you know, the swift attack on the Bank of Bangladesh, those had you know, various hallmarks of state-based um, backing as well. And that, that's, that's you know, pretty worrying, really, I think. Yes, I think, I think it's worrying for, for a number of reasons. Um, Joe, did you have anything that you want to, I suppose, finish up on there? Yeah, I think, I mean, and the bad guys are not just after the funds, right, at the banks these days. There's much more information sitting there that is valuable 
Um, so the rewards are much higher. The chance of getting caught is a little bit lower. There's a lot of delay, at least that's what I know. And obviously, Oliver and Ewan are much more specialists in this world, but it takes a time for uh, the banks to find out what's happened. So I think it is a threat and it's a growing threat. Yeah. I mean, I don't think anybody would deny that it's it's getting bigger. And it, it, I don't think also it's it's no surprise to anybody that, you know, the banks can move at X speed and every criminal can move at 20x speed um, because because that's what they do. I mean, with, with that in mind, um, Ewan, I'm going to come to you first and ask you a very broad question, which is, are banks doing enough to tackle financial crime? And you can't just say no. If you're going to say no, you've got to give me a broader answer. And the same goes if you were just going to say yes. So um, I guess at one level, yes, they are. They're clearly spending a lot of money on, on financial crime, on cybercrime. Um, you know, I think the budgets within the banks are large. The question is, for me, is what are they actually spending that money on? And I think Joe's point actually comes to one of the critical things. It's not a question of if you get hacked. It's a question of when you get hacked. And then when you get hacked, the question is how fast can you detect that and respond to it? And, you know, we know that banks are very, very slow in the way they react to all sorts of different things. Their governance model doesn't allow them to move fast. Uh, and if you've got a governance model that um, means that you... You can't make changes for days or weeks because everything has to get signed off and you've been hacked. That, that's just not viable. Um, I think that you know, if you were to look at a non-banking actor that just got hacked recently, well, a couple of years ago, BA uh, and, and the £20 million fine, you know, that vulnerability was sitting on their website for two or three months until it got pointed out to them. They responded fairly quickly after that, but actually the detection was minimal. And I, I think banks are in a very, very similar situation. Their ability to detect and respond, I think, is questionable. I mean, you know, okay, so we, we've just said, you know, it, it will happen. <laughs> and, and you know, it's, it's just a question of when and how you respond to it. What do you do or how do you help your customers if the attack means that your customers lose money or, or their data? Because people are, I think, as they should be, but increasingly worried about a hack that takes their personal data. You know, is there anything that... Um, banks and, and, and large financial institutions need to be doing to rebuild that trust with customers? Well, so, so uh, what, what we usually see, what I see our clients do is refund and repair. They're not doing that because potentially they have to because of legislation or anything like that, but they just can't have the reputational damage and they don't want the reputation of being an easy access and an easy target. I also think it's, you know, the reputational damage is... Um, uh, it goes both ways. So customer trust, yeah, if you get hacked, you're, you're seen as a, as a weak actor. But on the other hand, I think as the fintechs will point out, um, being open and honest when you do get hacked, you do lose data, actually helps build credibility. Uh, and, and I'm not sure the big banks are particularly good at that. No, often when something happens, you get a statement from a bank which still sounds as though, you know, 75 people in a PR team have written it and it is lacking in any either nuance or human emotion a lot of the time. Because, you know, if if you if a hack happens and money gets taken from a customer's account, which I know doesn't happen that often, but, you know, it can happen, um, that could be every penny they have. <laughs> you know, you've got, you've got to at least reflect that they are probably quite distressed about the situation. You might be less distressed if your email address gets pinched, but, you know, it's, it's not really the point. Um, you know, t- talking about fintechs, Oliver. I mean, have have fintechs been kind of uh, forerunners here? I mean, what what do the fintechs that you know of do differently to banks when it comes to ensuring cybersecurity? Do they have different measures? I think you know, maybe t- to Ewan's point, from what I know, their governance processes probably are 
quite different, which would make a difference. Um, you know, what, what's your experience been on that? Well, I think, you know, my, my experience comes kind of from two sides. I, I did spend some time in a previous job auditing banks on cybersecurity. So I know a bit about how they work there. And of course, at Voxmart, I'm responsible for actually securing our cloud platform that stores, you know, financial institutions data on it, with, you know, many hundreds of thousands of records. And the, the single biggest difference is actually just agility, that a small organization can make changes fast, as Ewan says. It's not so much necessarily governance, because the right types of governance structure are kind of appropriate and scalable for different types of organization. It's just the size of the organization and also a huge, huge difference is kind of, I don't know, agglomeration, accumulation of legacy technology that banks have. I mean, a lot of them are sitting on IT systems that could be, you know, 30, 40 years old in some cases. And I'm not joking, right? You know, they are mainframe systems. They are hard to secure. Uh, they often you know, aren't, aren't particularly up to date. They're also gigantic. So, you know, you look at these gigantic mishmashes of systems, very difficult to control, very difficult even to understand what is doing what in a bank. Um, whereas a small company can be, can be that much more agile. And also, you've got a much better chance of understanding what you're doing when you've built it using modern methods. You're looking at, you know, infrastructure as a code. You're looking at DevOps methods. This is, it is a well-defined, auditable, understandable thing, right? Um, so you have the advantage there that it's possible to do things rapidly from an organizational and a technological perspective. And you also don't have this, this millstone around your neck of, of 50 years of you know, insufficient budgets and insufficient control and, and all some kinds of other sort of organizational legacies. So I think, yeah, you're bound to have small, agile, expert, um, innovative organizations being forerunners in any kind of category, really. And, and cybersecurity is no exception. Did anybody else have anything to add? You know, is there anything that anybody can call out that fintech specifically have, have you know, other than their size, um, you know, got an advantage over? Uh, are, they, are they implementing any particularly interesting methods? If you think of it from, from my perspective, uh, working at MyTech, uh, uh, identity verification provider, because the fintechs don't have physical branches or anything like that, from day one they've had to adopt digital ways of doing KYC, which means that they are, to all of us, point much better equipped to be able to protect those accounts because they are digital and to the latest standards, whereas the, the, the traditional banks are sitting on uh, millions and millions and tens of millions of accounts that, that really are not up to standard. So I think that's where fintechs have the advantage as well. They can start from the digital and they only have the digital channels. Yeah, so they actually, I suppose, have uh, have have fewer um, fewer channels that could be uh, to be got at through. I suppose, um, you know, Joe, Joe, from from your perspective, um, is there anything you'd like to add about you know third party vendors? You know, uh, do you, uh, improving cybersecurity. You know, it's it's an option. We're talking about banks and their big mainframes and having forty years old. A third party vendor presumably is an option if you can get your forty year old mainframe to talk to the third party. I suppose there is that aspect of it um and also is there anything you know around around open banking um with that sort of you know we're now building layer upon layer of, of access to both data and and money if you you know look at what's happening in europe um you know it, it, it just i suppose from a third party perspective is there anything you'd like to add well, I think it adds complexity. I mean, there's there's all sorts of good reasons why we should want open banking. It creates opportunity, creates competition, and that hopefully will translate into uh, more choice for us as a consumer. But it adds complexity into the system, which also brings extra threats. Uh, um, it's hard to say 
if that will uh, create more services where the bad guys can attack? Uh, the simple answer is yes, that will. Uh, that means that they have to have their guards up uh, as much as they can uh, from day one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, to, to the point there, let, let's go on to talking about data a bit more. Um, in your in your experience, is what is it? What is well, I suppose? What are the most common types of, of of cyber attack that you see right now? Is it bad actors going after data? Is it bad actors going after you know funds? Is it the core systems themselves? You know, is it actual infrastructure that you know bad actors are trying to get into, get control of, um, or, or are they all just as bad as each other? <laughs> is there no trend in in criminality? I was I was going to say there's you know probably in terms of actual economic damage, the biggest in the UK anyway, the figures suggest that most of it's either espionage or IP theft at the moment, probably the biggest, um, the biggest kind of drains, but biggest impacts. But in terms of the number of attacks, it's almost certainly opportunistic attacks. You know, it's, it's, you know, somebody's grandmother getting ransomware on their laptop or something like that. That's happening very, very, very frequently. The really kind of orchestrated targeted attacks are, are substantially less rare, although they're they're very, very damaging when they do happen. The, the thing that kind of probably catches a lot of organizations out is when those opportunistic attacks, you know, someone, some department accidentally clicks the phishing link and then that escalates into, into a targeted attack across their entire infrastructure. So I think there's, you know, there's a large volume of small attacks and then a small number of really, really big, scary ones too. Can you can you tell me a bit more about what you mean by espionage? And then, sorry, guys, I want to come to you, but I just was like, had a, espionage? Is this spying? Are we, are we, I wasn't expecting this to come up today. There was a report, actually, that, that was published. It was published by, oh, God, which of the government departments done, done with Detica, but they reckoned that it was costing the UK economy like £10 billion a year, espionage. Uh, they didn't really go into a lot more detail beyond that. I guess they wanted to stay mysterious and cool-sounding. But IP theft, they also put that like 10 billion a year, they, 9, 10 billion a year in terms of lost IP from industrial espionage, that would be, which is, you know, the entire, the entire kind of impact of fraud last year in the UK was only 6, 7 billion, something like that. Um, thank you. I just, I was just intrigued. As I suppose the word espionage is supposed to intrigue, isn't it? Um, you and you, you had a point to make before I fell down a rabbit hole of spying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the important things to remember here about sort of the actors is, um, you know, the external actor, the hacker and everything, uh, it looks good on a Hollywood movie. But the reality is that most systems don't get hacked into the firewall or, or those systems. Actually, I think most threats and most, most data theft actually is someone internal. It's a disgruntled employee or, or something like that. Um, you know, they, they, it's just easier for an internal employee to be socially engineered to either give out the information or they may decide to go rogue and, and steal it. Um, you know, what typically the way these systems are built is once you're inside, it's open. Um, you, can, you can generally move around. Uh, that, I think, is probably one of the biggest threats that people don't really realise. Joe, did you want to add something on that? Yeah, I was thinking about what Oliver was saying as well, but also even um, this single point of failure is um, is a big problem. At least that's what I'm hearing in the market. And because it's digital, they can just keep hammering at the systems and hammering potentially at the people, which is a very much a big problem until they find that one person. Once they're in, like even says, you're in. Um, and I read somewhere that almost 70% of your ins are actually sh through phishing or somebody's given up data or granted access where they shouldn't have accidentally in most cases. 
Yeah, no, it's 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 a sad fact, but humans are often <laughs> the point of failure in organisations. Um, with with that in mind, sorry, Ewan. Yeah, people get hacked, not machines, right? Yeah, and um, there is. I was reading something very interesting about the brainwashing that can go on from external actors to employees. We won't go into that today. What I was going to do was move it on to, okay, we know humans are a point of failure. What technology can we use to help the humans to, to make their lives easier? And is it being used sort of to its full potential? I'm sure somebody is going to talk to me about AI. I don't know. I don't know who wants to go. To, Oliver, perhaps you want to jump in first on that one. But I know that there are there are other technologies out there. I was, I was actually going to start somewhere easier. I mean, it's somewhere simpler. It's the, the best thing to help people out with technology is to take away the things that people find hard and replace them with things that computers find easy, right? And, you know, like passwords, right? You know, multi-factor authentication absolutely changed the game, right? And when you look at things like AI, you're actually taking something that people find very easy often and trying to make computers do it, which is why things like, you know, face recognition, it, it's taken quite a long time to get very good. And a lot of the, um, you know, speech recognition is an area that that we spend a lot of time looking at. And actually, you know, machine transcription, even state of the art today is quite bad compared to, you know, a person listening. You know, one will produce you produce English and the other one will often just give you gibberish. So I think the key thing is pick your battles there. Don't make people remember bad passwords. Give them two factor authentication, but keep the people doing what they're good at. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. There's a service I use that recently contacted me to say that um, they were introducing two-factor authentication, so everybody had to set a PIN. And then a few weeks later, they said, actually, due to feedback from you, we're not going to do PINs. We're going to do a memorable word instead. And I was like, oh, that is nice. You've actually listened to your customers. And, and you know, as long as people don't put their pet's name, I suppose, that's the danger there. Um, but it is it is that that interesting, you know, that the, the points of failure, again, come back to being human. Um, any other technologies that people want to shout out before before we move to some, some ad reads? I mean, one of the things I'd actually pick up on that, that point about sort of uh, listening to feedback, I think that, you know, I, I agree with Oliver, the ease of use is, is critical. But actually, I find that you know, one of the problems is that every bank has a different set of uh, criteria, you know, different password capability, or some let you do 2FA, but others require you a memorable word, etc. And what I think should be um, used a lot more is, is giving people the choice. You know, I want to be able to use 2FA and this particular process, and banks should make it easy so that people can use a, a multitude of different systems. Uh, and if they then allow, uh, and as long as you, you, you can use 2FA plus this, or you can use this and this and this together, uh, you know, getting that ability for customers to choose the security mechanism that they want to interact with the bank would make everything a lot, lot easier. Um, that just doesn't seem to happen. No, I can agree with that. I'm terrible with numbers, but I'm much better with words. So giving me the choice of using memorable letters or words, I'm much more likely to get it right. Um, Joe, any, any final thoughts from you on that? Yeah, th- throwing up multiple layers. So um, you need to give them choice, but also spreading the authorization, if you will, across the organization. So if something um, needs to be authorized that is a potential threat, uh, I think if there's a single point of failure, you need to spread that and then add in biometrics like we've just been hearing. And all of a sudden it becomes much harder to get in. Yeah, no, no, that, that, all, that all makes a lot of sense. So we're going to just pause there for a minute to hear from our sponsors. This episode of Fintech Insider is brought to you by MyTech. Combining the world's best forensic experts with the industry's most advanced technology, only MyTech delivers banking-grade identity verification with the highest possible assurance level, massively reducing risk, fraud, and costs. Discover more at mytechsystems.com. 
This episode is also brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneers of personal digital banking. They're reviving the vision of financial institutions being on a first-name basis with customers by offering a platform for personal, human-centered service that puts the customer first. Your customers experience immediate accessibility while your employees get cloud-based, core-connected tools to offer service at the moment of need. To learn more, explore the team's latest insights at jackhenrydigital.com. We love making podcasts at 11FS, and this is not our only one. If you haven't checked out our sister podcast, InsureTech Insider, then you're missing out because we've published some of our best ever episodes over the past few months. From the future of work to the biggest industry InsureTech news, there's a topic in there for everyone who wants to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Head to ii.11fs.com to start listening or just search InsureTech Insider on your podcast provider. Okay, back to the show. So as we mentioned uh, at the top of the show, October is Cybersecurity Awareness Month, and this year's theme is Think Before You Click. It focuses on the importance of personal accountability. Whether we're checking personal emails or accessing the company server, diligence must always be exercised to avoid inadvertently opening the door to hackers, as we've mentioned before the break. So um, do we think that the general public understands what they need to be doing? I mean, Ewan. No, clearly not. Um, you know, that, that's why I said earlier in the in the in the program. You know, the, the biggest risk is the ubiquity of devices. People are incredibly uneducated. Um, you know, they, they they just want to use their devices. They don't want to have to jump through all these hoops. I think particularly the older generation, they they're not used to it. They haven't grown up with it. They are not aware of all the uh, the implications of social media, how you can get trolled. They they're just completely out of their depth. And banks, I think, need to accept that as a job to be done to be able to handle that properly. And I'm not convinced they are. Anybody else? Yeah, and on the other hand, Sarah, it's also hard for the banks because anytime they introduce friction, uh, there's resistance as well. So we, funny enough, we're expecting a certain amount of friction and that varies per device. So on my laptop, it might be different than on my phone. So if I want to set up an account and the bank makes me jump through 10 hoops, I'm not happy because I want to be able to do that like I order a taxi or uh, or anything or buy a ticket online. So for the banks, it's also hard, right? They need to um, they need to balance out this sort of cybersecurity, throwing up the hurdles with the friction that the uh, customers might uh, accept and be comfortable with. Yeah, it's definitely a balancing act. Um, I think biometrics has made life easier for a lot of us who are comfortable with them, but there are you know, downsides to every method, I suppose. Um, Oliver, how about you? Do you have any thoughts on the general public and what we can do perhaps to, to help? You know, are, are banks the, the people who should be educating people? Is it, is it the government's role? Is it Uber's role? Who, who's, whose job is it? Is it teacher's role? I, I mean, you could you you can make some argument that you know you need somebody needs to teach these people, but at the same time, you know, it is not easy for your non-technical person to recognise a phishing email. You know, you try and train people, you say, oh, just just look at the email address, and like, well, I don't know what an email address is supposed to look like. Well, just read the hyperlink, and like, I have no idea what that means. It's garbage to me, you know. So, um, it's actually quite difficult to, you know train someone who doesn't have a background in IT how to spot a phishing email. Um, so you need to do more from the technology side. And you think if phishing is the main way that people get scammed, and it probably is, you're really looking at the people who are running mail services and what they can do to help. Right? If, you, if you remember back what it, what it used to be like many, many years ago, 
before you had kind of sandbox based malware detection, there was a lot of malware and a lot of a lot of spam emails. Now spam, you know, it's pretty easily detected these days. Um, but malware bad links, not so much. Right. And I think I think there's something that can be done there. I think certain certain providers do a much better job than others actually when it comes to checking those out. Yes, I don't think Google is short of a few bob that perhaps it could spend on uh, on looking into something like that. Certainly, they might be better positioned with resources than uh, than the, the banks would be. You and you were looking pensive there. Was there something you wanted to add? No, I think it's just um, the observation I would make is that it's just a numbers game. So even if you did educate a lot of people, the fact that it's now ubiquitous means you only have to get a tiny fraction of a, of a tiny percentage point, and still you've got a lot of people who can be hacked. Yeah, it's it's free to send a phishing email. Basically, if your return on investment, you know, is is still good because you can send a million a day, right? Yeah, you only have to get one or two, you know. Mm. So, so what about the organisations themselves? Then, um, you know, it, it, I, I'm thinking, you know, more about perhaps. I've, I've just in the UK recently, the the FCA has um, said. It gave people a sort of grace period when we all started working from home immediately and said, you know, okay, we're not happy about it, but we'll give some flex in compliance procedures. You know, they can't be the same as in office right now for various reasons. Um, so we will give, you know, some some flexibility there. But they've come out recently and said, yeah, no, <laughs> you've been working from home long enough. You should have worked out how to make sure that things are secure. Um, and I think they're thinking, you know, I haven't read the, the full uh, piece myself, but from what I understand, they're talking about, uh, to Ewan's point, you're on a device sitting in a room in your kitchen uh, and you may be handling very sensitive customer data that you would usually be, be dealing with in a, in a call center on a, you know, an unlocked device, on a strip device, on a protected device. Um, it, what, what can organizations do about that? What are they doing? Like how, what improvements have been made, I suppose, since we moved in towards working from home? Uh, you know, what new things have, have people come up with to ensure that, that things are still secure when they've got a distributed workforce and distributed devices? I think, you know, a lot of financial institutions have made huge infrastructure investments in actually bringing the trading floor to people's houses, you know, putting in new lines, putting in, you know, phones and stuff into, into people's houses. Um, but at the same time, there's been a huge increase in mobile surveillance, right? You know, we saw it was actually quite incredible to see, you know, mobile usage on our platforms increased something like five times the week that lockdown was introduced in London, right? Because suddenly everybody is not at their desk. They're not using a squawk box or a turret or whatever. They're using a mobile phone. It's all they've got. Um, so, you know, the tools are there and people need to use them. And I think, you know, that, that's what the FCA are saying is the technology is there where people, whether people are in the contact center or not. Um, to, to, to do what you need to do. In fact, one of our customers actually runs their contact center remotely. So all of their kind of contact center operatives work from home, run from a mobile phone. It's totally doable if people want to do it. Anybody else on, on the working from home point? Is there anything else I'd like to add? I, I th actually think this is where, you know, a lot of the fintechs benefit because they're natively digital and also they're natively remote. You know, we 11FS are natively remote. So you build your systems to work that way. Uh, I think the FCA's point is that, um, you know, a lot of these organizations, big banks, their security was based on the, predicated on the idea you would have to be in a physical location, um, which is why they've obviously struggled. Uh, I think it goes back to their earlier points about if you actually approach this in a fundamentally different way, as Oliver said, and actually you approach it from day one as a digitally native business, you can set this thing up very, very well, very easily. But a lot of organizations are struggling to do with that. And I can see why the FCA would push um, because they, these organisations just aren't in a position really to do it. 
Joe, anything to add on that? Mm, so yeah, the weakest weakest link is still the human, and it doesn't matter if they're if they're at home or or, or in the office. Uh, so the tech, but they need to use it. Uh, I still argue that having much more biometrics in the mix will help uh, prevent some of the problems if it if it's involving sort of authorization. Obviously, malware hacking of uh, devices is is a different problem. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, uh, that also then you will get some pushback from people if uh, they're sitting at home on their personal laptop or their personal phone, and then their company says, in order to make it secure, you're going to have to install some kind of surveillance or recording software on your personal phone. Um, I can I can very much see why people might push back a little, and I suppose in that situation. I suppose my response would be, well, you can send me a new phone if you like, <laughs> uh, if that's what you want. I th- and I don't know. I think that's quite reasonable, but maybe I'd be unreasonable. I, I think that would be reasonable. It's worth the investment, sending everybody a new phone. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, you, you know, everybody has their right to a private life. And I think, you know, the FCA regulations are pretty clear on that as well. They say that institutions need to give you a recorded line. They're just supposed to do as much as they can to stop you using unrecorded personal devices. That's good. Good to know I'm not being unreasonable. Um, all right, I'm going to I'm going to ask you now to to polish your crystal balls or get out your your deck of cards, whatever you use to predict the future. Um, so you know, are there any technologies that we think aren't being used enough? And with this in mind, so completely accept your point, Oliver, that you know there are much simpler things we can do first with technology we have now. Um, you know, that would be the first step. But what would be the next step? I don't know if anybody wants to throw any buzzwords around. We could have some machine learning in there, some 5G if you fancy. Anybody got a soft spot for IoT? Anything else you I might find in a one of a million press releases that comes through my door? But well, on a serious note, is there anything in there that you think actually could make a huge difference in this space? You and I mean, a lot of it, like IoT, is actually the source of of the problem. You know, these unsecured devices that have been thrown out there, these are exactly the things you shouldn't be putting into your, into your infrastructure, at least until there's a much stronger security capability in place. You know, I do think sort of the AI uh, machine learning type uh, approaches will become a lot more important on that detect and respond capability because, uh, you know, a system, an AI system continually monitoring the various parts of your network infrastructure for different usage loads, et cetera, will clearly be able to respond a lot faster than a, than a board sysadmin who's stuck in a, in a, in a dingy lockup somewhere. Uh, but I, I do genuinely think that the biggest change will be around those basic architectural principles. Uh, you know, the idea of actually putting multiple layers into your system. You know, we know that too many systems at the moment are once you're in, you're in, and it's, it's free reign. And actually spending the time and money and effort to secure that in a in a much more zero trust based mechanism, I think that's what has to happen over the next five years. Anybody else got any other pet favorite technologies they want to give a shout out to? Yeah, I think there's going to be a, a lot of kind of adoption of machine learning kinds of things for anomaly detection. That's already kind of happened on the network and analysis side of things. You look at them, dark trace and similar products. That's going to be applied in more and more places where you you have such a large volume that you can't get people to look at it and that's kind of the the kind of area that we apply those sorts of things in where you know it might take a person five weeks to do it or a team of people to do it five weeks well we'll do 200 of them overnight for you kind of thing and so the the automation of those relatively simple but um you know many 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 tasks because you're right with iot in particular 
when you've got millions and millions of connected devices, people cannot keep up with that. So yeah, you'll see a lot of automation around, around you know, um, those processes for detection and response, vulnerability management and patching. Yeah, I mean, I, I say that I know too much about them to accept IoT devices. I will not have Alexa in the house. You know, I, I, I sort of feel that I know I know enough about how vulnerable they are to go, no, thank you very much. Who wants light bulbs that can catch malware? Where's the value in that, honestly? <laughs> yeah, and I'm not so far gone. I can't still turn the TV on using a remote control if need be. And I can look the weather up myself and still set a timer. You know, I am I am capable of these things. Um, jo- Joe, any any favorite technologies you want to give a, a shout out to? Any? I mean, I don't. We haven't had any blockchain yet. If anybody wants no. to throw that into the mix, no, no blockchain. All right, I feel the same. It's fine. No, they've been taken off the table for me. ML and AI are super important to to advance sort of the ways that we can analyze all the data. And I think ultimately the goal should be to uh, to detect problems much quicker. Uh, I think Ewan and Oliver said that. Uh, but you need to go from sometimes it's weeks uh, to months to days and hours as, as quickly as we can. And the only way that will happen is with uh, with technology like machine learning and AI. Um, and, and what about kind of rules and regs here? So do we think we need sort of a mutually understood and a widely accepted level that these are the bare minimum things you should do? Maybe we already have those and it's not enough. You know, is that an option? I, I guess we do need a bare minimum, but the problem is bare minimum is not enough. Uh, you know, and the reality is that security is nuanced. It, it does depend on the the individual uh, system under control. I think, you know, maybe if the bare minimums are that you have a, a zero trust type mechanism where every system has to be secured, you have to have proper multi-factor authentication on these systems. Actually, everything has to be encrypted by default. Uh, you have to have proper key rotation capabilities to make sure that encryption is up to date. Uh, if that's the bare minimum, fine. Uh, but the reality is you're still going to get data leakage because people will be hacked, you know, uh, spear phishing, other, other kinds of threats. And I don't think you can legislate ultimately against people. <laughs> Some people have tried. Um, Oliver? I think that, you know, there's a lot of kind of prescriptive standards out there like PCI DSS for handling card data and that kind of stuff. And I, I'm, you know, largely not really in favor of those lists of controls. I'm much more in favor of organizations, you know, taking control of their own risk. I think there are some areas, though, that like IoT is, is a fantastic example where you're buying a device that has it ships with vulnerabilities that the manufacturer knows about, and they give you no opportunity to upgrade or fix those vulnerabilities. That is, you know, in, in the common English, as well as the legal sense, that is negligent. You know, if somebody gave you a car that they knew was dangerous and then they didn't offer, there was no recall, right, to fix it, then they would end up in court, right? And I think that it's a matter of time before the legal system really catches up with, with kind of the civil liabilities, if you like, associated with IoT. I mean, they're the sources of the biggest botnets ever known and the biggest DDoS attacks ever known have come from, you know, cruddy IoT devices. Um, that can't be allowed to go on. But I think in, in many other areas, I think it's, it's flexibility that fosters innovation. And, and, and that's how we'll get some better solutions for the problems. So let people manage risk and, and don't tell them exactly how to do it. Yeah, I mean, that's that tends to be the European way anyway. I know that in the US, regulations are done slightly differently. Um, Joe, any final thoughts on rules and regs? 
Well, I think um, it will ob- obviously always help. And to Oliver's point, it's more sort of teaching uh, people about the common sense of using this type of device, but also helping them understand the risks that are involved instead of just the fun side of it. on that nice succinct point I think we are going to wrap up today's discussion Um, thank you all so much for joining me where can people find out about you uh, and your companies Joe how about you go online you can find me on LinkedIn and more about MyTech at MyTechSystems.com perfect Oliver how about you yep and again just go straight to www.voxmart.com or find us on LinkedIn Uh, it's the best place to find us brilliant and you, and other than you know, uh, drinking the local pub before before the lockdown happens. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, also, you and you and elevenfs.com is my email address, and obviously find out about elevenfs on the podcast. Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It does help to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on social media. Just search for 11FS or Fintech Insider or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.